welcome to Talking Early Years, um, the podcast that talks all about things to do with early years with me, Juno Sullivan. And today I have a wonderful guest, Kate Silverton, um, who has written this rather lovely book called There's No Such Thing as Naughty. And we're going to talk about this for the next half an hour. And I have prepared a raft of questions for Kate, but I don't think we might quite get into that and it'll be more of a conversation. Um, and I just wanted to say that actually my team have chosen your book as their, we have a book club called Pedagogy and Prosecco, and they've chosen it, um, which is interesting because that's not the sort of usual sort of books that they choose. They usually choose something that's sort of heavy on pedagogy. So that's well done to you. Thank and you. Um, and also uh, I str- it struck me that it's one of the books that I will send to our parents to help them to parent a bit, you know, because it's it's I found the whole thing very um accessible and uh, I, I I loved your your imagery and and also your willingness to use your own children as examples which I thought really connected uh, and as a mother of two boys and one girl I I totally connected with the the different ways you relate to girls and boys you know in that just in a natural sort of way and how they how they see things in their own particular way as well it was really interesting for me oh well that's wonderful to hear coming from you I take that as a huge compliment so thank you to you and your team not at all not at all we're looking forward to it um I've got lots of stickers in the book and that's always that's what everyone knows that when I have lots of stickers in the book it's a book that I take seriously and that I go back to over and over again and quote from so um there's lots of stickers in your book Um, okay, so um, let, let's just just to open this thing out a bit. Uh, it was really interesting um, to look at the how you framed some of the the sort of the context for parents, and you noted that parenting is the toughest job in the world. And uh, you know, I asked my but the question, um, you know, so therefore, why are we not better prepared? Um, and you know, the question I wondered about was, and what you thought about was, should parent, you know, childcare um, be taught in schools as a means of supporting people who are likely to become parents? And also, you know, I know the Duchess of Cambridge is doing quite a lot of work on on kind of raising the the uh, challenges of being a parent in in modern day, so to speak. Um, but should we have a national campaign to raise the status of childcare and early childhood education, so sort of so that we sort of build a national appreciation of the importance of our children? Uh, in short, absolutely yes. I think the uh, the key here is in support, isn't it? And um, I think the key for me doing the research as I did and training as I am now doing, um, I'm a counsellor on placement and as a mother, um, the key findings for me, you know, when I became a parent for the first time, it was just, wow, first of all, as I say in the book, well, yeah. <laughs> who knew it was going to be so hard? Exactly. And secondly, like, is everyone else finding this hard? And, and thirdly, why is it so hard? And I think th- there's so many different strands to it, but certainly there is a huge amount in that lovely saying, it takes a village, you know, to, to raise a child. And it certainly does. And I think if we can view it as that, not some finger waggy nanny state-esque type scenario, this is about us coming together as a society to support each other, to go back to, I think something of the way it was, you know, when we did live in these extended families and we mm. could ask for advice. And now we have the benefit of, of, of having the latest 
is neuroscience to help us really understand what's going on in our children. And one of the quotes that really struck me was, was around emotional regulation. I quote a lot of people in the book, you included, of course, June. Thank you. Um, all the people that have inspired me and, and eminent scientists and people working in childcare. And it just struck me that emo emotional regulation is the greatest gift we can give to our children yeah. under the age of five. That's it. Forget about sort of little yeah. Einsteins or whatever, creating little Mozart. If we can give our children the gift of emotional regulation, that is a large part towards future mental health. And actually, when we understand that, we can also understand ourselves better. I've just been interviewed by Joe Wicks, of all people, you know, and he said, thank you for writing this book because it's changed my life because he said I grew up in an environment which was very difficult mm. and I know that I'm in danger of repeating that cycle the slamming doors and the shouting but as I understand myself on my own emotional regulation from a really lovely you know uh, perspective that's welcoming and, and accessible which is what I wanted the book to be then we can start getting to a place where we have regulated parents and regulated children. And that's where the magic happens, as you and I both know. So, you know, I really, it's its just wonderful to hear that it is translating in the way that it is. And I just wanted to do it from a place of, well, it helped me. <laughs> so yes. if it can help me and my husband and my children, then I hope it can help others too. Yes, because I mean, I looked at it from two perspectives, because uh, again, the point you made about, you know, in one way, parents are overwhelmed by information. I mean, just too much. And on the other hand, there isn't enough kind of, you know, kind of relevant and immediate information. Um, and we did a survey with the parents who use leaf nurseries, um, um, uh, I don't know, maybe a year or two ago. And uh, one of the things we found was, who do you look for, for support? And of course, you tend to go to your own parents, uh, your friends, your immediate kind of group yet I don't know if there is because uh, what we wanted to understand was do they come to the nursery you know uh, can we help are we informed enough are we knowledgeable enough are we supportive enough to be able to answer those questions and that was really the rationale for asking the question in the first instance but it did it struck me that you know when you when you kind of stripped it all out and all these you know as you say these kind of platforms and uh, blogs and influencers and all that sort of stuff actually when it came down to it you went to your immediate kind of connected friends and family but given that we have so many people now having got on their bikes you know are you know living this two-parent uh, economy um the, the the disconnect between them from their family and their friends actually sometimes is quite long and I, I think you noted that in your book especially if you come to parenthood later for whatever reason that, you know, you're not always surrounded by people who have small children themselves. So um, I was just wondering about how we um, rethink uh, the kind of way of supporting uh, parents of all different kind of persuasions and backgrounds. And I think to myself, I was 20 when I had my first child. Uh, it was, a, let's say, a bit of a surprise to me. Um, but I come from a family of five children, so I wasn't uncomfortable with the idea of being around small children. But my, the reality of being a parent at 20 was like, hey, <laughs> it was a kind of, you know, me and him, we kind of figured it out between us. But um, had I the time back now, I'm sure there are many things I would have done differently. But at the time, you did what you thought was OK, you of know. Course, yeah. <laughs> 
Well, I think that's it. There's um, were two things that struck me as, as as you were just speaking, and I'm just trying to think. They're my first point. Um, let me just take a pause because it was lovely what you said, and I thought that's exactly it. Um, about going to who you go to for support. Yeah, so it's who you. Go oh, that's right. Yes. Sorry, that's going to be a little edit for you, maybe. But um, <laughs> so, so what struck me? I've been working with a number of charities for the last decade or so. Uh -huh. um, so the NSPCC, the Anna Freud Centre, place to be. And I sat in on the parent school with the the Anna Freud Centre. They do uh, wonderful work, as, as I'm sure you'll know, in yeah. supporting parents who've had a very challenging time. And one mum and I sat down, uh, and um, we were chatting, and. It was clear that she was carrying, and she would admit this is not me putting words in her mouth, but she was carrying an awful lot of guilt because of the circumstances of her son's, you know, his experience of parenthood. There was domestic violence in, in the home and he was taken into care and, and she was carrying an enormous weight around that. And then we were talking and talking about our son's behaviour, both of our sons, and the wonderful relief of shared experience mm. when I could see that there were certain aspects of her son's behavior that she felt was, uh, you know, I could, she was taking it on as guilt. And then I just said, yeah, my son does that too. And it, the relief of, of, oh, okay. So that bit's normal. Yeah. That's a bit normal. You know, all of our children are responding to various things um, with the sort of stress responses I talk about in the book. When we can understand mm. it, we can work with it rather than taking stuff upon our shoulders and thinking, oh, I did something wrong. Actually, no, our children respond to all mm. sorts of things in everyday life. And actually once we and and she and other parents on that uh, during that time that I was filming, they said, we now know how to repair uh, we all have rupture in our lives, all of us. We'll all have, you know, as you've just said, your circumstances, my circumstances, we're all going to have, whether we're working parents, single parents, there's going to be challenge. The key, as many psychotherapists and psychiatrists would say, if there's always going to be rupture in our lives. The key mm. is if we know that we can repair, that is where the glue comes between us and our children. That's where the resilience gets built. But that does take a process. We have to be engaged in that process. We don't want to retreat into a place of guilt and shame around our circumstances. Actually, to know that our best is be good enough, um, I think is really helpful. And those parents said to me, we now have had the support from the Anna Freud Centre. We now have feel able to break the cycle, the mm. sort of that sort of sometimes a generational cycle mm. where trauma gets passed down and and the same behaviors get uh, replicated because otherwise we don't know, as you've just said, if we're only taking from granny that smacking is the way to yeah. um, discipline our children, then we're going to do the same. It doesn't make us bad people. It's just that that's what we've been taught works mm. in inverted commas. Mm. So she said, when, when I then started talking about writing a book, they said, look, we understand how powerful this is. And, and having spoken and shared our experiences as parents, they said, we want to, we now get it. But if you could put the science in there, Kate, because then that means mm. that I can go back to granny and say, I don't want to keep smacking my son because he's not naughty. He's got needs right now and I am going to be helping him with those needs. And I do not want to stick him in a corner. I do not want to put him on a naughty step. I do not want to discipline with smacking. But they said we can't kind of push back <laughs> on that generational thinking unless we know the science. And then came the rub, the warning, Kate. Remember, 
the average reading age in the UK is eight. Mm. And I thought, goodness. And to me as a journalist, my job is to communicate. I don't come from a privileged background. My dad was a, a London cabbie and, and, and he, he always said to me, you know, hard work works and also never be afraid to ask questions. It's not mm. you if you don't understand something, it's actually, it's not being explained to you in the right way. And that always stuck with me. And with mm. this book, I just wanted to write something that was really hefty in terms of the science so that my mums and dads that I met that time in the Anna Freud Center could go back and say, here's the science. This is why we're not going to smack our children mm. anymore. And moving forward to also to put it in a way that wasn't some great big academic paper that was, you know, God, you know, we're all tired and exhausted. And I yeah. don't want to be sat there in my bed at night when I'm fraught with a baby and a three year old. I just just tell me now what works. And so I just wanted to put that imagery in there of the lizard, the baboon, the wise owl and the baobab tree so that every parent could kind of go, ah, right. We're in baboon mode right now. And that's where that sort of lovely understanding for me, for me personally came from, because I could sort of put all the neuroscience into a really easy form that I understood. And I'm like, yeah. that's my child's brain. That's my brain. Yeah. And I can move forward from there as a parent, not shouting when my, chi my children are running right, but understanding that there might be a stress response going on or anything else. And just simply asking the question, right, okay, I might be tired. I might be at the end of my tether. I've got 50 emails to answer. But right now I'm looking at two children who need me to help them to regulate and calm down before bedtime. That's my job as a parent and I can do that. And do you know what? Parenting becomes so much easier, so much easier. Our kids are happier, we're happier. And that was the key for me. If I could get this message out there, as it, it, it's a very long answer to your question, June, but the point of this is, I knew if I could do this in a way that made sense to everybody, then I could get some progress because we could all go, ah, light bulb moment, exactly as had happened with me as a parent. I mean, totally get that, actually. And um, I'm really interested in the fact that there was a whole chapter in your book about emotional regulation. And this is really timing because... Um, you know, it's very interesting, isn't it, that, you know, we're still a bit shocked and a bit, oh, Victorian, you know, children should be seen and not heard. Yet we don't even bat an eyelid to allow a child to cry or to, to cry it out, as they say about babies sometimes, you know, or, you know, sending them to their room. And I mean, the whole television programs on naughty steps and, you know, counting to three and all that sort mm -hmm. of stuff. But and I, I, I totally get that. And I was very interested because I, I, wait, I, I, I waited until I found the bit in the book where it said, but we need boundaries too. And I thought that was really helpful and something to really kind of, I think, um, highlight because a lot of parents panic because we do know that the theory tells us quite carefully that very authoritarian parenting doesn't really work, but so neither does laissez-faire, kind of that kind of Absolutely. lackadaisical stuff. And you make that point. And I think it's important that you make that point again when you're giving you know, the science to the parents, but also the sense that it, it's not there's a, there's always a fear in parenting isn't there that you lose control yes you have to be in charge um and you did a lovely example i think of a child called i think jamila and where you said the mum the, the 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 child wanted to walk along the top of the wall gosh we all know this one don't we and and she was in a panic in a hurry and needed to get to somewhere and so she wanted her to hurry up and basically what you want her to do is jump off the wall and call my head and run around you know wrong like a good child and then um, she recognized that actually, you know, there has to be some kind of compromise. But the compromise was interesting was if you stop crying, you can walk the wall. 
Mm. And I thought your bit was really very beautiful that, you know, you can't, my mother used to call it a tucked, you know, when you get so upset, you can't kind of catch it. Um, and your whole body is going and you see little children like that in supermarkets and stuff and you just want to wrap your arms around them and just make them feel safe mm. but I thought that was really interesting and I think as a journalist you have the potential to give 50 different more explanations so parents get that because I don't think they do I think they're wanting to hold on to that control which is I'm telling you, look, this is the deal, guys. You know, you're three and this is the deal. The deal is you you stop the crying and you can do the bit for 20, for, you know, for the next two minutes or whatever. Re- not recognising that actually the deal is a wrong deal. <laughs> yeah, and I, that's really why I the, the first two chapters for me were the hardest to write because I knew I had to get people from the get-go, but equally they were going to be, that was the science because what I wanted to say is first chapter, this is your child's brain. This is how we all develop. This is now what we understand from our child's brain. And then it's the second chapter is what goes on in the brain doesn't stay in the brain. So what we're, what's going on for our children in that moment that Jamila might have been anxious about going to school. It was only her second day at school. She would have had anxiety going on. Well, that is a whole body experience. And so I explain the stress response in that second chapter, again, really simply, because we all have it. And it's how we can relate. So we're saying, actually, for a child, it's her second day at school. Maybe something happened yesterday that sort of upset Mm. her. She's carrying all of that. And children are brilliant at sort of exorcising their stress. And actually, for a little child, that's actually quite clever. The little baboon brain is up on the wall because then I can sort of exorcise that Mm -hmm. physical feeling of stress that's going on in my body. And as I said, I explain the stress response uh, very simply, but that, that was really key for me because then we can look at our children think right if I say to you you've got to stop crying and I say tears we should be looking at tears as stress leaving the body so if my child is crying I I sort of liken it to toxic water sort of there's all this sort of the 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 amygdala the fire alarm in in the brain has gone off and and sort of carrying all this sort of anxiety and then in the body uh, how we calm down is we sort of have the the um, sprinkler system but if that water stays in the body this is obviously sort of all me metaphorically speaking if that Mm -hmm. water stays in the body to me it becomes stagnant so tears are an amazingly brilliant thing and if we can embrace them there is that fear you see this is what we also tackle in the book is that we're not going to create cry babies which is what I think the old school would have had it and a lot of parents and certainly my husband who comes from the northeast and I say in the book so this is all he would you know there was that sense of if we allow indulge in inverted commas crying we're going to create cry babies and what I really say time and again in the book is let's think of tears as that toxic sort of that stagnant water leaving the body it's a good thing and that gets the stress out it allows our children to do what comes naturally which is exorcise the stress and then scoop them up and say you really really want to walk the wall you might not know in that moment why Jamila wants to walk the wall but you know what in two minutes she's going to hold your hand she's going to love you all the more for it that you don't need a boundary in that moment you know we just need to have that bonding with our children there are boundaries clearly you know we don't want our children running right in a restaurant but again no, if we understand the stress manner. response well and also but if we understand that boredom is stressful for yep. children they're having to sit there suppressing all this like i want to get up i want to get up so that's again our job as parents to sort of take enough stuff to engage that seeking part of the brain so that they will sit and be engaged but there's always lovely soft boundaries that go in if we don't have boundaries with our children 
it feels like and actually a therapist said to me once and I thought it was a brilliant way of looking at it um, and she said if you don't have boundaries in a relationship it's your children will literally feel like they could fall off the edge of the earth because it's like where does it stop and I thought that was a brilliant way of looking at it so we put these lovely and and we do it in you know as I'm counseling on placement now when I go in and my first session we'll always sort of set up a little contract it might be verbal it might be on paper depending on the age of the child but it sets out the safety parameters that Mm. in this room I'm going to keep you safe you're going to keep me safe we're not going to do any behavior that's that's going to not be safe and we can do that with our children and they operate within that really really well I absolutely and I don't know where in the in the book but I loved the concept and you described it as inside the child's head and I think that should be the name of all PSED courses for every member of staff because I thought it was a really interesting way of looking um, of the inside and I'm going to check that um, this the stuff that we do with our staff is you know sees it from that lens because I, I just thought it, you know for once it was looking at it from the child's perspective rather than from the adult perspective and I think there's that I think you noted that yourself actually that that's very powerful yeah. and also I think it's really interesting sorry to interrupt but but also to think and I've tried to do it a lot in the book of explaining how we respond so I talk about things like um if I come home and I've had a really tricky day at work and uh you know I use this as an example it's not me personally but let's just say my boss has berated me in public or something and something's happened that's horrible and I come home and I might then actually sort of you know moan about the dinner or something or might moan about something and my husband might look and think well that's a bit off isn't it and then you might have an argument well I'm bringing stuff home from work in the same way that our children will bring stuff home from nursery or school or whatever if we can take a step back and go sweetheart you look like you've had a really tough day do you need a hug well that that's where the magic happens because it's in that understanding so in the same way if my husband said to me oh for god's sake and just left me and walked away and said just stop being so silly if i was trying to tell him that i'd had a difficult day well how would i feel so i think sometimes we can also reframe it from our own perspective and think right actually how would i feel in that instance and it gives us that natural empathy of being able to step inside our children's mind or shoes um, to see things from their perspective too I think that's really interesting. And and I was just trying to imagine how do we help parents and adults generally um, to find a way of putting a kind of magic blanket around themselves so that when they actually come home or, you know, pick the children up or whatever, they've got that bit of kind of comfort to give to that child. Because you're right, so many parents, I mean, I feel for them, you know, they're under pressure at work. Um, they're rushing in the traffic. Uh, they finally arrive at the nursery three minutes to, to six, panicking out of their brain. So, and right now, of course, the settling in is weird because we can't have them in in the way we would normally do. Mm. And you arrive and you've got all that pent up anxiety. You know, it's a bit like when you lose your child in the supermarket. And you've, you, when you finally, and I've done this myself, I lost my daughter in Ikea. I didn't actually lose her. She thought it was funny and she was hiding. I thought I was going to have a heart attack. I thought I was going to die. So when she, when I found her, I shouted at her. You know, it was like, what have you done? And then I calmed down and gave her a hug. But she was looking at me in amazement, thinking, this was a great game, mummy. Why weren't you playing it? I was thinking, oh, my God, I thought you were dead. You know, all of those things. And I think sometimes we don't perhaps prepare um, parents to even have their own kind of high, you know, amygdala hijack to step. Don't come into the nursery for for two minutes till you've done four deep breaths or whatever it is that kind of calms you down. So when you come, the welcome and
Right, you've frozen for me. Incident where uh, your little little boy had, he, you know, he, it was an orange or an apple, but it was neither an orange. The orange or the apple wasn't the issue. It turned out that him and his friend had had a little altercation and he was very worked up by that. Um, and and then actually, it, how, do, how does he tell you? How, do you how does a child tell you these things? And I just wonder about whether we should do some training with parents. And that's why I think it should be taught in school from day one to give examples of, a child's uh, sort of description of how they're feeling and how it comes out not in a way that's articulated or grown up. Yeah, absolutely. And and that's why I was quite keen to put loads of tips and tools, like practical tools, because mm. it would help me. Um, so as you say in the book, the, the example of, and I hear this time and again, actually, as you say, parent rushes up and, and we're, so if we can recognize in ourselves, right, my stress response is up, which in the book we explain means our lizard and baboon, which is our survival part of our brain, mm. you know, and that is up and out the gate quite quickly if it senses sort of threat. And if we're late and we're running and then, hey, presto, we're, we go, right, we've made it. And I'm so looking forward to seeing my child. And then they look at you and there's a snarl. Yeah. And with my son, it was I was holding uh, the apple and he wanted an orange and this massive meltdown took place. Now, then we recognize in our heads that my baboon's already up because I'm late. Right. Then yeah. I have public humiliation because my son has literally rejected me. Oh, yeah. I'm looking forward to seeing him. So I've got public rejection. Everyone else's kids seem really happy to see their parents. <laughs> oh, Mine gosh. is snarling at me and now prostrate on, prostrate on the floor. And uh, so then I've got that. So I've got public humiliation. That, again, is going to trigger my own limbic system. So, again, the baboon is now really enraged yep. because there's humiliation <laughs> involved. And there's also fear because there's fear that I don't know what to do next. And my yeah. son is in front of me in face and, uh, you know, knee deep in the mud. Now, in that moment, so there's lots of things we can do. And I would love to see this happen. A few star jumps, right? Make, you know, kind of. And I use it in my counselling rooms as well. You know, if we've had a pretty tricky session, we'll do a few star jumps. And that can be quite funny then as well. And I explain it that we've got all this stuff in our bodies and we just need to let it out. And then we start laughing. But actually, that is really, really working. That, that, that's proper science in terms of oh, shaking it all out. Mm. Um, and so there's all science mixed up in just practical ways of loosening up and getting rid of the little stresses that really helps to bring us all down. So actually, I'd love it if parents, you know, it, it, to have a sign saying, have you done your star jumps? <laughs> and then the parent goes, and that gives everybody that five second window. And it's a bit funny and a bit silly, which also really helps because, you know, if, we, if we're all laughing, then the straight, you know, the exactly. baboon can't be up and out. Exactly. Then, and it also gives us a chance to, okay, it's a reminder that we're stressed because that's what we're doing, our star jumps. And you know what? Our children pick up on that. And also then a reminder that if our children come out, like Wilbur did that day at the nursery, he is doing that not because I'm a bad parent, but because he sees me, the sort of safe mothership or fathership, safe, you know, the yeah. safe um, mothership, as it were. And he's offloading all that he's held in during the day. And my job at that moment is not to punish him, if I then can regulate myself thinking, oh, quick star jumps, and actually it's not personal, stop snot, as I say in the book, it's not personal, and looking at him in his distress and think, something's going on. I might not have the ability to, to translate it right now, and there's a whole group of people looking at me, so I recognise that I'm feeling a bit stressed and a bit sort of overwhelmed myself, but I am convinced that I can help my son in that moment. 
And, you know, I've had the first woman who uh, interviewed me, brilliant journalist, and she texted me to say we had the orange apple moment in a bookstore. She'd taken her daughter out to spend some quality time, as I talk about in the book, the sort of hero hours, and she's got a new baby. So she thought, I really need to do some bonding, took her toddler out, went to the bookstop to, to bookstore to get a book. And her daughter just completely had a massive fit saying she wanted chocolate. Now, here's the lovely soft boundary, because we're not just going to go, oh, OK, here's some chocolate. Yeah, and she said, I knew that. She said, but I also didn't know I was she said then in my head, I'm thinking, God, I brought you out. We're having a really nice day. And now you're <laughs> kicking off about the chocolate. But she said, I had you in my head, Kate. She said, I had the book in my head. And she just said, come on, I think we're going to go somewhere a bit safe. Because she said, I just knew I had to get her somewhere safe that I could feel regulated and I could regulate her. She said, I picked her up. I held her clothes and she said, I just sort of took her out, out and, and she said, we sat down and she said, it, she really was very, very distressed. And she said, in my head, I was thinking, oh, I don't know what I'm doing, but I'm going to keep persisting because Kate said, and she said, I just sat with her and she just said, you are so upset right now. Do, are you able to tell mummy? And she couldn't. Her daughter was so upset and she's only two and a half. And oh, then goodness. she picked up her teddy bear. So this is where what I love is that parents can take what's in the book and then mould it into what works for them. So she took the teddy bear. She said, do you think you can tell Teddy what's wrong? Yeah, and her daughter, Yeah, beautiful. And uh, and her daughter immediately said, because using metaphor, storytelling is really powerful for children when they're really young. And her daughter said, X, 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 so-and-so um, hit me today at nursery. Yeah. And there it was. And she said, I could have wept. Because she said, the, if I hadn't, she said, previously, I would have taken that as a slight. I would have been really upset because I'm trying to do something nice. I would have scooped her up and said, well, you're not having chocolate. You're not having a book. And then we would have all gone home unhappy. Whereas in that moment was that lovely opportunity to, oh, sweetheart, I'm so sorry. Gosh, you must have had a difficult morning. And then do you know what? Chocolate goes, the bookshop goes, and it's a, it's a bonding parent-child, you know, moment, a magical moment where the child feels mummy daddy sees me they hear me they feel understood and we will and she said kate the meltdowns are melting away they're literally going overnight because i've just adopted this new way and i think that can well it definitely applies in the nursery setting in a school setting if we can flip it around and think what is my what are my children in the classroom what are they telling me in this moment that i need to be able to understand that is going to see the behavior start regulating because children feel seen and heard I couldn't agree with you more, actually, and I've written it down and we're going to talk to my uh, team about this to make sure, because I think regular, I mean, I think you made some examples that, you know, we're trying to teach our children how to kind of connect and emotionally regulate. But for ourselves, quite often, we haven't actually figured that out ourselves and we behave a bit like, you know, you know, baboons ourselves quite often. And you you made reference to it in in, you know, road rage and uh, and just rudeness, you know, some of the rudeness you see in people. And um, and I just thought, well, you know, have have we spending enough time in the sector making sure that we're looking at that? as part of the training for staff so that they can look to themselves so that they can, as you said, you know, put the child really right, right there, right into their heads, just jump right into those heads. Um, but I, I, but I, we're up against it, Kate, and I think it's helpful for you in your particular position and your advocating position to recognise that we have a government that, you know, is really traditional and old fashioned into this idea. And they're they've really been kind of like there's been a lot of narrowing this notion of self-regulation to kind of sitting still and being good. Mm. And and um, and you talked mm. um, you gave a lovely example of. 
uh, Wilbur having um, not wanting to wear his white polo shirt. And it turns out that he finds it hard to get on and get off. And the question I, I kind of that came for me straight away from that was, you know, I am of the view that we should keep our children in a nursery play environment. And you talk a lot about play. And for, for that, I am entirely grateful to you that actually we should keep our children in that play based environment until they're four, four and a half to certainly till they're four and a half, five and a half, six even. And rather than pushing them through the school route, because I don't think that they're always ready for that. And there's a lot of expectation placed upon them because they're one of a, a group of I don't know, 26, 30, whereas in the nursery, they're one of a group of eight. Um, do you think that, uh, you know, how do you think that you can get parents to maybe understand that and to recognise that, you know, being able to write your name at three um, and, you know, being able to, uh, to do stuff at, at four so that you're in school and you've got into a good school and stuff actually does no favours for children and a lot of them need to have the pacing of their development and their learning in a steady way. And there's no evidence across the world, no matter where you measure it and how you cut and slice the data that says that rushing them into school or rushing them into formal education actually advances their ability that actually in, in a way giving them more play-based experience, giving them more uh, opportunities to extend and, you know, and, and to develop and to, to focus down on things that matter so that they're really, really getting a good grasp of all of the things we need them to do really well practiced actually, you know, is not the better way forward. And that, you know, the, the, the school, the uh, countries in the top end tend to take that focus. How do you think you could, in your role as advocate, kind of really get that message out there? Brilliant question. Um, so first of all, I would let's let's see to unpick it a bit. One is that, as you say, as an advocate and having written the book now, it gives me I think I was so keen to write the book in that regard, because when it gets endorsed by people like Professor Peter Fonagy, who's sort of such a, you know, one of the gods of mental children's mental yes. health in this country. Yes. And, you know, when you get Peter saying every parent needs to read this book, I'm like, OK, <laughs> I'm done. And, um, you know, and people like Bruce Perry in the States that I've collect, you know, that, that I quote in the book and so on and so yeah. on. So it was really yeah. important for me to to get the science nailed and to get it endorsed by the people who count because yeah. and the Duchess of Cambridge as well, might I add in that, because the Royal Foundation does a huge amount in this area. And I'm I'm hoping to be doing some work with them in that regard. So I think the first thing for me as an individual is that it was important to write the book because it was as a journalist, as a mother, I just wanted to share what I had discovered for myself and that had worked for me and my children. Uh, as a mental health advocate, when we are in a time of such crisis, Hmm. It is entirely wrong to be focusing for young children, as you say, on academic achievement. Yeah. Really, uh, you know, I wanted for my children over lockdown to be emotionally well and happy and regulated. And that was my main priority. I couldn't do it all. I couldn't sit and be uh, do lots of homeschooling because the capacity wasn't. I just wanted to sit and play because that's what I recognize. And I think, I, as you say, we must recognize the power of play. And we can do that when we understand brain development. So this yeah. isn't just a sort of a, a, a rather lovely rose tinted little theory coming up. There's all oh, plays lovely. Play is fundamental 
to our children's brain development when they have a really good solid foundation in terms of if we think of their brains developing like a house we build a house we get the foundations right when the winds of adversity blow as they inevitably will later in life if our children have that strong foundation we are going to see good future mental health the house won't fall down and i think when we understand that and that's all of us, you know, we all have it. And that's just an understanding. So we, we, there's no blame or shame, even pol you yeah. know, for politicians, for parents, whatever. This is not about saying, look, look, we did things in the past because, you know, when we know better, we do better, basically. So now we know that it's really important to get the, the architecture of the brain as healthy as we can in these early years and that play is vital to that and em emotional regulation is vital to that that's pretty much all we need to do in the first five years hmm. the summer born issue i would you know that's another whole big thing oh yeah because, you know the summer born <laughs> issue my, my my son's a summer born so ah. I, and i'm a summer born so oh, i've done too. a huge <laughs> ah so i've done a huge amount of research in this area and i think that is a massive issue uh, oh, to, to, to tackle if we can um so there is there's a lot of but I, I do find that if we can bring people with us, I'm not a, I'm, I'm not someone who sort of harangues or finger wags and I never would never seek to be. What I want to do is to bring people with us through an understanding and say, here's the science and here's what we know. This is not just me saying it or you saying it. It's this is what we now know um, from the neuroscience. And actually you in your experience, June, and all your staff know works. Uh, can we listen to you, please? And then create this grassroots movement. I do what I Great. can. And, and in fact, I will kind of not harangue, but I will um, go in as a journalist and, and, and point out and I'd love to take on policymakers, not take them on, but work with them to sort of say, look, we are a little bit behind, I think, in the way that we view children. You know, all this talk of behaviour pods when we come back from lockdown. Well, funny old thing, oh. children's oh. behaviour is going to be bigger because they're communicating all the anxiety that they've been holding in over this past year haven't they all done incredibly well haven't parents done incredibly well we need to be nurturing people now not sort of suppressing them and locking them in sort of behavior pods and, and forcing them to sit still we need to understand so i think when, as i say when we know better as maya angelou says we do better and that's the key and i think it has to come from grassroots let's empower parents to say actually it's not acceptable for my child to be forced to sit down they need to go out and play there's yeah. a lot of evidence around adhd now that there's been um, an over sort of um and i hear this from pediatricians this is not me saying this and people like dr margot sunderland who says it in her brilliant book the science of parenting that we're very quick to label children when actually mm -hmm. what they need is play because physical play is what is helping their brains develop and a lot of boys because of course their brains develop slightly differently to girls in the first few years it's sort of they're Absolutely. playing catch up so physical play is fundamental and for parents to feel able to sort of demand it in a way of of saying actually no you're not going to sit my child on a chair i need to know that you get this stuff and so they can drive change as well and i think i see that with a lot of parents that instinctively they know what's right but there's this sort of sense that we have to go along because the teacher says this or the head teacher feels that and so don't be afraid to challenge i think as parents and as staff that if you feel that something maybe could be done better or that it's going against what you instinctively feel is right for your child like the summerborn issue then don't be afraid to advocate for your child you are not alone in this you me you know we all i've done this work because instinctively i felt 
you know, that I needed to do it for, for various reasons. And I've been lucky enough to have the world's greatest experts to sort of guide me in that regard. Um, so don't be afraid to advocate for your for your children. And I promise you, I am doing all I can uh, to advocate for our children in this country. That is my life's work now. And that's the thing that I'm most passionate about, as long as raising my own little family, too. Well, I'm, I'm on that note, I think um, I'm going to take it that you're going to back us and that you're going to work with us and that actually together with, you know, the Duchess of Cambridge and all the others who've been saying this forever, we've been saying this for years and years and years, that actually what we need is to build a national philosophy about modern childhood, which is based on what is good for children. Count and so me. I'm going to hold you to that, Kate, and, yes, um, and, and hope that your voice will add value because... I think you're right. I think we do need a um, a movement. And um, I think people are ready at the moment for it. I think they've been surprised by uh, the COVID implications for, for, for children. And I know many of our parents, God bless them, have written so nicely and said, you know, I had no idea just how much stuff you did with our children. And I need to know more. So I guess your next book, Kate, has to be exploring what does learning in a nursery look like and why do we do what we do in a way that makes people understand that you know the early years pedagogy um you know is manifested through as my friend Lala Manners would say through the physical beings the very every bone and every muscle of a child's body and that the way we do things has a logic and a science behind it that will ultimately get those children to a position of comfort and capability and, it, you know, and we'll see them through. Yeah. And I guess if we have voices like yours behind us, we can't go wrong. Yeah, absolutely. So. And, 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 and to sort of supplement that as well with, I mean, I even spoke to a mum this morning who she said, I'm reading the book and I really get it and I just don't know how to play. And I think that's yes. a really, it was, you know, and I literally wanted to give her a hug because she, she's actually a psychiatrist and she said, I feel this immense pressure because of my work. And yet I, I'm finding it because, because funny old thing, her mum was an academic and she didn't play with her. And so why would you? And I said, well, why? I said that, you know, why would you? And I think that also in the book is, is a way of supplementing the work that you do. So parents can kind of go, do you know what? When I bring my, pick my child up from nursery, it's not just, thank you, job done, June staff has done, they've all done their bit today, I can switch off now. Actually, 10 minutes a day of play with your yep. child can work wonders in terms Completely. of bonding and decompression. And for you both, actually, I find it really meditative to play with my kids. And it's actually, as a, as a therapist who works a lot with arts and play, um, as I, keep, I must keep stressing, I'm a counsellor on placement. I'm still in training, but I work with children uh, and, and have supervision at the end of the day. But the work that I've done in my training with Place to Be is all arts and play based. Yeah. And, um, and it's very powerful and every parent can do it. You don't have to be a therapist in training or a qualified therapist to actually help your children. Um, you can sit and so that I really was keen in the book to sort of give little scripts and help parents just because you can sometimes it's just sitting back being present for your child yeah. at whatever age and just observing I do it with my son every morning he'll mommy can we have our lego time and we sit there and it's just oh I can see you've picked up the zombie uh, one today and then he'll and then I sort of just follow him I don't have to really sit fully he doesn't need me to he just needs me to see him and I think if parents knew how easy play is and how mm. rewarding it is they could do it go a long way to helping supplement the the amazing work that you and your staff do 
Well, I, as I say, I think it's all needs to be part of a national philosophy about modern childhood where we actually appreciate that play is a science. It's a small word, which is a deep, 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 meaningful um, set of behaviours, actions, knowledge, base and understanding. And we can't assume that grown-ups know how to play. So I think that's a really that's a really useful starting point. Um, and to give people permission that it's OK to have fun and play. And I, I love that you woven through all of this in this whole book, the, the purpose of dads, because I think sometimes the, the role of the dads gets a bit lost in all of this. Whereas um, we know that actually having an engaged father, whether they live in the, in the home or they don't, actually makes a significant oh, difference to both so, little girls yeah. and little boys. Yeah, and, and that was very much part of my design, which is why it's lovely when I do hear back from people like Joe Wicks and uh, like my husband, who's former military and he had the, sort of quite a difficult start in life. He lost his dad when he was very young. He didn't really have anyone that played with him. So, it, you know, his admission to me was, but Kate, you know, I can't do what you do. And I said, you don't have to do what I do, you know, <laughs> uh, you, you know, and, and just sort of give him a few little tips and tricks and the, the joy of walking past the bedroom window mm. and hearing him play puppy which i knew probably inside is cringing but actually came out and he went it's really quite cool i just sat there and i just sort of watched and i did a few things with the puppy and clemency loved it and that was it you know and i think sometimes demystifying what it means and i think for dads they should absolutely there's a magic in it and they shouldn't be excluded at all from these conversations quite the opposite um yeah what's well, there something i was going to tell you just then what we were just talking about in terms of having sort of a universal i can't think it's gone from me but um oh well actually i was going to say to you because i'm going to have I mean, to get this... you on as a guest in reverse because i'm going to start doing a podcast in that way and also start doing some play-based stuff so and filming it so um, i've got a little plan for a program so that probably is my next step a television series so i'm oh, going to be i'm going to be knocking on your door for that well, this has been my life's work, so I'm always happy to help to just take any inch forward because there's nothing happier than to hear children mm. actually be, be nurtured and supported and just to enjoy them because they are just such wonderful little characters, every one of them. Um, so I'm going to say thank you uh, a million times. We've run over, but I don't think it matters. I think many of our parents will enjoy this conversation, and I know certainly the staff will. Um, and just thank you very, very much indeed for writing the book and for being open and brave and for using examples that we can all connect with um, so it doesn't feel like it's something that's unachievable. Absolutely. Thank you so much. And thanks to all of your staff and all the parents for listening and, and being open in return, because I think that's what it takes, isn't it, for us to all come together and share um, the, the good times and the bad <laughs> and, yes, uh, and, and to, to sort of come through knowing that we're all facing the same and all of this, all of this. Um, there is resolution in all of it and we're serving our children for their future mental health when we do so. Thank you, Kate. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Lots of love. Bye. Bye-bye now. Thank you for joining me today. If you like what you heard, please share it or check us out on our website, leaf.org.uk.